Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. A few weeks ago, I saw a viral tweet that set off quite a bit of controversy on the health and scale of the Austin pre-seed and seed environment. I thought the best way to answer this question is to bring on two local VCs who are directly focused on this stage. I am joined by Caitlin Donnelly, Managing Partner of Avalanche VC, and Rajiv Bala, General Partner of Clutch VC. We discuss how we define the stages, the evolution of the Austin market, and what trends they saw this year and heading into next. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Caitlin, Rajiv, welcome to Austin Next. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. I'm excited to kind of see where this goes and dive into really what is going on in the earliest stages of the VC market and startup market here in Austin. I think a good place to start with here is just why don't we talk about each of your firms, what you guys are doing, what stage, and kind of what your big themes are. So, Caitlin, you want to start us off? Sure. So my fund's called Avalanche VC, and we invest in the first institutional round of capital into companies that are transforming how people learn, earn, and own. So that often means like ed tech, future of work, SaaS for small businesses, companies that might be connected to home ownership or um, owning your own data, um, that sort of thing. And we want to be you know, super early, right after your angels, first institutional round. And we are Clutch VC. We are a pre-seed and seed stage fund focused on Texas. We also want to be first institutional money in. That can be a participation in an angel type round, or our core check is really a half million into a million to $2 million pre-seed round. We are focused on Texas B2B software businesses, and we try to bring a bunch of resources to the table at the early stages to help our companies. So I like the fact that both of you said, okay, first institutionalized check, but sometimes an angel round, a pre-seed and seed. So there's a lot of, I think it's gotten really muddled on what we kind of mean, like pre-A, you know, angel, pre-seed, seed. How do you define these stages? And would you be using like, is it size of round? It's the valuation? Well, like, what's the metrics to say it's an angel round, it's a pre-seed, it's a seed? I can, I can hop in. So the way that we think about it is we call it the angel or incubation round. That's usually pre-product, definitely pre-revenue. Round size tends to be about 250K to 500K. And then once product is built, maybe it's an MVP, maybe it's something more than that. Usually early revenue or an unpaid pilot or something like that. That's what we call the pre-seed round, one to two million. And then kind of after that, at least what we're seeing in the market today is the true seed rounds are happening They're, that are typically around three to $5 million when a company is 500K to a million and a half of ARR. And then, you know, series A is uh, beyond that. Where it's, right now, it seems like the markets are frozen, but when they start opening up again, we think it's going to be in the two to five million of ARR, eight to $10 million type of rounds put a pin and want to come back to that comment of the markets are frozen. I think it's an interesting okay. comment, but I want, I want to dig into it. Do you have the same definition? Yeah, I do. I think I would say pre-seeds are less than 10 million post monies generally. 
and maybe seeds at max 20 million post money, but more like 12 to 15. And then each round should probably be for like 12 to 18 months worth of runway to hit the KPIs for the next round. Or even in some cases, like we are pushing our founders to get to cash flow break even and and make it more optional. But that's, we can talk about that later. Well, so then that's a question because, so is it being, it's not being driven necessarily, is it being driven by size of check and size of valuation rather than what level of money it's in? So I'm thinking like, I just want to take an edge case for a second. Somebody, you know, multi-time founder and goes in and says, okay, I'm raising a 20 million post money round. We then just going to call it seed, even though that might be the first check in. I think some people have been doing that, and that definitely happened in twenty twenty one. You know, you do have like a three and a half, four million dollar like pre seed seed round on twenty million post. I don't think I think that people are reflecting on that and saying "Mm, maybe that wasn't smart or a good idea for either the founders or the investors. Yeah, it, the way that these rounds get announced, it's um, the incentives are, are a little bit weird because, you know, is it better for me to say I raised a small A or like a really big seed? And what you typically see is people saying I raised a really big seed. It's also been interesting to see some of the the gamesmanship on whether you're even announcing some of these, like uh, a deal that I was in, you know, they announced uh, when they announced their A. Then they announced kind of, oh, by the way, we had raised X amount pre-A. Like that was the entire announcement. And I know from the being in, I was like, yeah, there was, you know, three small rounds as they kind of gained the traction and they had a really good, you know, a really big A. And so it was an interesting thing, like, we're just going to lump it all together. We raised money and we want you to kind of focus on the next step. Yeah, I don't think the journey, if you, once you raise an A, I don't think the, and price the round, I don't think the journey to get there is particularly important to anybody other than, you know, people on the cap table. And do you see any differences between these rounds in terms of the vehicle, whether we're talking about convertible, priced, safe, does it depend, you know, and do you see more of one at the other, at the different stages? I exclusively do safes with the expectation that they'll convert in, you know, 18 to 24 months. I mean, I would do price rounds, but we tend tend to just be earlier than that. So it doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah, we're we're happy to do either. But usually, if you're raising less than $2 million, it doesn't really make sense to spend 40 or 50k on a priced round on just legal fees. And so usually, if it's over 2 million, we tend to price it. If it's Below that, we tend to do a safe, but nothing's hard and fast for us. So let's jump to Austin and the state of the environment here. So the origin of this episode was that there was a viral tweet you know, a few weeks ago that said, Austin desperately needs another real pre-seed fund. And so, and there was quite a bit of pushback in terms of, well, these exist, these don't. I will say some of the lists I saw, people were like, these exist. I'm like, they don't really do seed. And so I want to start, Caitlin, with you as the relative newcomer to this. I'm I'm still going to claim newcomer status, even though it's been almost three years. How would you describe the state of pre-seed and seed in Austin? I think it's very, it's varied is the reality. Like you have a lot of, I've I've met a lot of solo GPs or small firms sort of like me that have a vertical focus. And then you just have a lot of also like Austin angels around Austin that might do a whole wide range of things. And then I think what 
the the like perceived lack comes from there's no like one Austin pre-seed fund that's like I just look at everything that's in this like Austin ecosystem that isn't that isn't one of those funds that's been around for a long time that's now gotten bigger and is really doing seeds and mostly A's. My contrast to this would be I, I was in um, halftime in Seattle before I moved to Austin and there are definitely quite a few funds in the Pacific Northwest that just invest in the Pacific Northwest ecosystem at the earliest stage. And so you can go and talk to all of those funds and those those fund managers if you're a founder. First, I think it's a little bit harder to navigate for founders in Austin when you have a bunch of like vertically focused pre-seed funds and then no like dedicated Austin generalist. So, so the ones in the Pacific Northwest, Northwest, I think obviously we're thinking like the Seattle type of ecosystem. Is it that those dedicated pre-seed funds are really generalists or are they not, you know, they have just a few verticals? Like how are we, how are we to think about them? Well, Seattle is very obviously enterprise tech focused and now AI oriented. And so I guess you could say they're not true generalists, but like they're definitely more generalists than say I am, right? Like they'll look at kind of everything. And and because the ecosystem breeds a certain type of company, the they can match the, the funds and the companies can match, I think, pretty well. Versus I, I think Austin just has so like the diversity of what people are building here is so all over the map. Like you have actually quite a quite a big ed tech ecosystem. You also have a big like space tech ecosystem and like and then you have B2B SaaS. And so you have so much variety here in Austin. Doesn't that then, while being harder to find, lead that we would want more dedicated vertical funds rather than overarching general? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that there's a, a problem with it, but, uh, you know, I'm not a founder, you know, trying to raise my first round. So I'm, you know, cognizant of that. Rich, if you've been here a while and kind of seen this, the ecosystem, Walk me through like the evolution of this stage. Is it different now than it used to be? How would you kind of layer in what we're talking about at this stage? Yeah, I would go back quite a bit to kind of give you the history of how Texas has evolved. Um, but if you go back to, you know, the 70s, 80s. No, we're going way back now. Here, yeah. Uh, and then you you start to see some telecom or semiconductor firms primarily start to grow in the venture ecosystem. And then those grew telecom companies. A lot of that telecom and semiconductor activity was focused in Dallas. And then a lot of those telecom and semiconductor companies started to put their software divisions in Austin. So some of the big enterprise software wins were spin outs of those software divisions. A lot of the venture capital activity was was really focused on Dallas up until the dot-com crash. And then after the dot-com crash, you had Austin Ventures, which had done very well through investing in enterprise software companies in the late 90s here. A lot of the Dallas firms that were focused on telecom and semiconductor got wiped out. And so Austin Ventures in the early 2000s ended up raising some, some pretty massive funds and then started to drift later stage. That was when what you would think of as the typical incumbents now who are in, in Austin, that's when we all started in you know between 2005 and 2010 small funds and filling in the gap of what you would now call pre-seed. And, you know, those firms have all had tremendous success and have raised bigger and bigger funds. 
And now, you know, I think Mike Maples has a great quote about how your fund size dictates your strategy. And so what you're seeing is a bunch of these firms that have raised funds between 200 and 350 million, they're going to have to naturally drift later stage. And so that drifting early stage has, in my opinion, created a massive vacuum at the earliest stages. So I would say we're undercapitalized. We need a lot more firms like us and and like Avalanche that are uh, um, you know writing checks, uh, you know, high conviction first check type of firms, and that's ultimately why I started this firm. Is you know this kind of pendulum continues to swing back and forth, and right now there's a lack of capital, and we really wanted to serve Texas entrepreneurs in that kind of first check way. So. Hopefully, you know, as we get out there more and, you know, we are going to be a dedicated or we are a dedicated Texas focused first check investor. And that's a role that we, you know, we desperately want to play in this ecosystem. So when we think about this stage, we've got a couple of different types of groups. We've kind of mentioned them all here, right? You've got the angels and the angel groups. You've got accelerators, things like the two of you guys, the one, two GP small funds, and then you have you brought up you know Mike Maples like you have then flood uh, you know firms like Floodgate that are larger than that but then highly dedicated in this particular in this particular vertical uh, or at least this is the stage. How do you think about each of those groups and do they play a different role in this stage? And should founders be thinking about them differently when going to a established firm, an accelerator, or like an angel group versus a one to two person GP fund? Yeah, uh, you know, I think that there's uh, the way that this ecosystem in Austin has evolved. There's uh, on kind of the angel group side. There's, I would say, very few folks, kind of like Brett Hurd, who I think you've had on on this show, who are programmatically and, and consistently writing angel checks. What I'm seeing right now with companies that are coming to us for a pre-seed round is that the angel capital that they've raised is often from domain experts that are not prolifically writing angel checks. So that's, I, I would say, the first way that entrepreneurs should should approach kind of the angel uh, networks um, and, and individual angels. On the accelerators, incubators, you know, there's, I think, 20, last I checked, there are 22 different incubators and accelerators in Austin. Really? I can think of like five, yeah. so I'm missing obviously like, you know, a whole bunch there's a couple that have shut down in the past, sure. you know, a couple of years, but it's still very active on that side. And you can find vertically spe- uh, specific accelerators, incubators, you know, all that type of stuff. So I would say, you know, uh, especially if you want access to really interesting industry folks, or if you don't have the access to investors, those are great places to go to. And then, you know, one or two GP firms like our firms, I think are. I mean, hopefully we are pretty approachable. We want to meet people as early as possible, pre-company even. We like to track folks. We like to maybe even, you know, engage in those angel rounds, that type of thing. And then as you, all of the, the you know, rounds that we put together, we are bringing in co-investors and we certainly want to have a, a number of syndicate partners with us on on rounds. And so those bigger Seed stage funds often are doing both pre-seed and seed. So we like to typically have one of those in the rounds that we put together so that we have some built-in follow-on capital for when the next round is um, ready. Caitlin, I actually want to start kind of again from your experience outside of Austin, you know, 
we talked about these other these programmatic angels and are are you seeing I, I kind of think of there's almost like three flavors of of angels. There's the structured angel groups and associations, which a lot of times have certain to be frank, they're slow. That's probably the biggest, you know, they have capital, but they're they're very slow. You have the, you know, the as you mentioned, like the Brett Hertz of the world, who are the super angels. Like I can just go do, I'm gonna do myself and write those checks. And then you have kind of the uh, the term I've used before is like the free agent angels, where it's kind of people floating around. It's actually the group that I put myself in, right? It's people kind of floating around, would like to be part of structure. And usually it comes back to like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so has a deal that's interesting. Oh, okay, five of us got together and you're having a conversation and kind of doing the due diligence ourselves. How would you compare that with like, uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest and, the, and these other ecosystems that you've been? Is it the similar? Do you have a lot more in one direction or the other? I'd say that there's people, particularly like in ed tech or future of work, who who write a lot of angel checks and they're not, it's not geography agnostic. And so I often like collaborate with those people and the angel checks that I look for, for companies that I like to back are when people can get angel money from their friends and family, from former employers, from their customers, from people who are showing a lot of belief in in both the idea and in the founder because they have an information advantage on them. I'm less interested, like, or I think there's just less signal in the sort of like, you know, I went to a pitch day and they were blown away, but they were blown away by the pitch. Like, and I feel like those are kind of going away and people in, I think Seattle has some parallels with Austin in, in the respect that, well, maybe it's even worse in Seattle where there's a lot of corporate people. And when they do angel invest, they can sometimes expect a lot of protections or like convertible notes and, and more ownership than they then really what makes sense if you're really going for a venture backed company. And I think that can be one of the like sort of like kisses of death for a company early because it's such a negative signal to bigger firms, particularly in Silicon Valley and New York. And I, I think that at least for, for me as a vertically specific focused fund, my biggest successes have come from when a tier one or tier two, well, a tier one investor has led the seed or a strong series A into a company that I found at the pre-seed. And if, if they're taking angel money or like incubator money with high ownership and like little, you know, advice, like help, you know, links to customers early, you're just not set up for success. How do you think about like the incubators and accelerators first, just generally, like are people should be people approaching them? Do it, how much value can they add? Obviously I know the answer is it depends. You know, there was actually a, uh, uh, a list by CB insights literally came out like today uh, or yesterday. And it was like, here's the top, you know, accelerators. And it was, yeah, the ones you've all heard of. Number one was YC. Number two was plug and play. And so it's the types of things that you would expect to happen. But how do you, how is you approaching companies that are hitting accelerators or, or incubators? And obviously they're different things from that, that perspective. I'll say something that may be a little controversial is like, I, I prefer companies that haven't gone through incubators. I think that the, many of the incubators take a lot of ownership and then they, they might not have like lasting mentoring relationships that last that long. And I think it, this, you, like the, like the startup game, at least what has been played over the last 10 years, it, there's no very like playbook. It's like, there's a playbook. It's tried and true. There's a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of people that have been through it. And 
I don't think you need to go specifically to an incubator to, to get those things. And if you do, then it's maybe not like the best sign for founder quality. I mean, you, you can pick through it and maybe find some gems, but the reality is, is like this, these, this is a very competitive game that we're playing and you want people who are stacked for success. And those tend to be people who already understand the game and are, you know, have been at a high growth early stage company before that's had a good outcome or they're on their second company because they've learned what has happened in the previous one and they don't need to kind of go through the training wheel phase. One of the problems I've seen a lot with, especially on the more the accelerator side is there are people who aim for accelerators as that in and of itself is the milestone. And I think when you're thinking about an accelerator is I should be accelerated by the time I get out. So what, what, what steps is it going to allow me to jump versus there's, I've just seen, you know, somebody been like, Oh, I, well, I got into this accelerator and now I'm going to go to this place. And I'm like, okay, at what point are you growing up? So that's actually, that's a good point because this is this other thing I also look for. And, and I also see that for, by the way, in, in seeds and series A's is you're like, for what purpose? Like, is it a, are you going to through the accelerator or are you raising from that fund because it's a credential because it's, you're playing a status game so that you can be X or whatever. Or are you doing it because it's going to drive an outcome for your company and for your investors? Because there's you know, sometimes even with founders that are you know near nearly cash flow break even or have a good business, you're like, well, why would you raise this big Series A from this firm or take these terms or whatever? And sometimes you when you talk to founders, it's like, well, I really just want to be like a tier one back venture founder. And you're like, okay, well that like you're uh, you know that's, playing the wrong that's, game. That, sometimes it feels like a status game rather than a let's like be focused on generating a hundred X return for, for the people on the cap table. Yeah. We used to have the saying at my old firm, like, is the capital going to accelerate progress or is it going to delay it? And you as an investor do not want to invest in a company where it's going to delay progress. You want it to go into company acceleration. And so to your point, if an accelerator is going to do that, then uh, it can be a really great thing. Of our seven portfolio companies today, two of them went through accelerators. And so we we will absolutely dig into the accelerator programs, but to Caitlin's point, most most second time entrepreneurs, been there, done that, folks, you know, go directly to the source. Sure, and if you get access to the second time, always the question is how do we pick out the diamonds that are in the first time, right? Which is one of the, I think in theory one of the values of the accelerator is you've got that additional you know social capital, but they got to be going into it for the right reason and not just. I mean, as you even said, like if you if you create a hundred X for somebody, that'll create enough, you know, status right there. But I don't think you need the uh, the outside status to kind of move you forward. Well, I think of accelerators like education, like school. So I'm in the education space, right? And we have a mantra that we don't invest in schools because why? Because schools have negative economics of scale, which means as you get bigger, every additional student that you have in is likely less prepared and less likely to be able to pay full ticket price. And so as the accelerator market has like boomed, you've had the same negative economies of scale where the your average startup founder is, you know, less prepared and less likely to be successful going in. And there's only so much like any education program can do in three months to like move a needle. I think it's what we're seeing both the scaling back of 
accelerators that have gone under and then also ones that have like shrunk in size. I mean, I, I kind of joked at the little, little of the Groucho Marx, but I knew that YC about six or nine months before they kind of did their whole calling down and, and shrinking the size was probably heading in that direction because the number of YC companies that were coming across my desk and I'm like, no, 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 no. I shouldn't be having access to these. If I'm getting access, there's a problem. Yeah, or you're getting access at like a crazy valuation, right? Right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so from that, then, if you look at kind of the, I mean, back to the the question on the tweet itself. If we look at, you know, angel groups, accelerators, more of these small vertical funds like yourselves, or you know, a floodgate type of situation. What would you say? Because you, you, you said there was there was a gap because a lot of those funds had kind of moved up as they as they got larger, which is not unexpected. What what's the what's the answer? Which which one of these do we really do we really need or are missing? Yeah, in in my opinion, so pre seed and seed is the most inefficient part of the capital markets, right? In my opinion, you got to be close to your companies, whether that's physically or you know uh, sector focus or something like that to be able to really help your companies get to the next level. So what you find is that capital traveling across geographic boundaries tends to be harder at the pre-seed stage. Traveling from a vertical fund to a different vertical is virtually impossible. And so, you know, one, I think we do need more capital at the pre-seed stages here in Austin. And I think that's going to solve itself over time. You know, the capital goes through is the opportunity and we have as Caitlin said, a number of pre-seed solo GPs and you know early fund managers that have moved here in the past few years. And there's just a tremendous opportunity in this market. So I think it's it's going to be solved. But as a community, that's where I think we should be focusing is trying to get more, more it's not just more capital into pre-seed in Austin, it's more fund managers. Because also in the pre-seed, you know, these tend to be non-consensus deals, you know, high conviction, and you know, you're wrong a lot, and there's many di different reasons to be wrong on a lot of these uh, companies. So we just have to have a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of diverse managers, you know, you name it. I think we just need more managers at the pre-seed level. I totally agree with that, and I also think that it's a it's it's a manager intensive time. So like when you have a pre-seed company, like, and, and if you're really stewarding it as a pre-seed fund, you're spending a lot of time with those founders and you have a lot of skin in the game because you, you know, most of the, most people are on their first or second time fund. So they really need to succeed. And so the incentives are really aligned to, to perform well. Um, but it's both time and money that people are putting in. So we've heard a lot about some of the the market situation right now. And I think that both of you saying that we need more managers, and I know it's really hard to be an emerging manager right now. You know, the the markets and especially LPs have gotten very kind of skittish. So I think it's a good way to kind of shift the focus a little bit so that as founders are thinking about, you know, trying to raise from pre-seed and seed to give them a little glimpse of what kind of what the other side of the table looks like and what you guys are doing. So I think the best way, I just want to start off with, you know, the actual mechanics of investing at this stage. And Caitlin, I'll start off with you. How are you thinking about portfolio construction and how is that probably different than say a series A targeted fund is looking at it? Yeah, um, I, well, I'm, I'm a bit different because I've 
despite being pre-seed and seed, I feel like I'm a high con- conviction investor and some funds in my stage would have like 35, 40 positions, you know, really diversified because if you look at all the portfolio math, usually you need about 40 to sometimes 50 positions in order to hit a real outlier or a unicorn. My bet is that as a uh, specialist, my hit rate will hopefully be higher for the companies that I've spent a lot of time in. And that was my lesson from my fund one is the companies that I you know, incubated early, that I got to know the founders over like six months before they even incorporated the company and I really worked with closely have done super well. And the ones where I was just kind of joining around has been a little bit more like hit or miss. And the type of investor I want to be is more high conviction, like working deeply with founders and helping to get them to the next stage. So my portfolio construction is a little bit more concentrated, but it also means that it's it's that I, I'm going to see thousands of companies and say no to almost everything. And so that's the other, I think the hardest thing about this job is that you meet amazing people and, and, um, and fa- founders are, are so smart and visionary and there's so many things going for them, but it just might not be like a you deal for this fund and for the thing that you want to, you need to prove to your LPs. And so there's a lot of reasons like why a f- company might not be a fit for me. But that's, you know, to, to Rajiv's point, like why you need a diversity of, of capital and fund managers in the city. And you need those like small GPs to, to work together so they so that they can pass deals off to the right people and be like, hey, I met this really awesome founder. It's not, you know, doesn't fit into one of my thematic verticals, but maybe it would it'd be great for you. And that just like reduces the friction time for founders who don't then don't have to go and try and find all these like new solo GPs. They can you know, get sort of like quasi warm intros. So how do you think about then if you said the ones that you've known for six months and, and longer, I think one of the hardest things, and I, I tell this to a lot of founders is, I mean, it's almost the same thing as like when looking for a job, don't, the first time you meet somebody shouldn't be when you're asking them for something. It's like, hi, I know you can give me money or hi, I know you can, uh, I'm just mad you can give me a job. So how do you think about that kind of building that relationship, especially since we're talking about the earliest stage when should they start to connect with you? When should they start meeting uh, kind of in, to really set up the right relationship since I'm guessing it's not of 10 seconds after they're, they're pitching you or 10 seconds before they're pitching you? I, th- I think that's a, that's a hard one to answer it because no f- founders are not commodities. They're not all the same. And when I end up digging in and spending a lot of time with a founder before I know I'm going to invest, it's usually because I'm like, oh, I really believe like I we have a shared vision of the world of where a very specific like part of the market could change. And you have been working on that for like 10 to 15 years and you're not quite ready to like raise the money yet for your idea. But we're very aligned on your ability to execute on it and the fact that this is an exciting opportunity. But if one of those two things isn't true, which is 99% of the time, like I, I'm not, I don't want to continue engaging because it's probably just never going to be a fit for me. Yeah. Our, across my venture career over the past 16 years or so, average time from first meeting to closing an investment is six months. The longest time was four years and the shortest time was two to three months. So we are almost never participating in a high pressure situation. We're closing next week. Do you want to, do you want to throw in some capital? 
we like to meet people early, like I said, even before they're, you know, founding the company. Um, and we're actually launching some initiatives around company formation and bringing that community of founders who are um, interested in founding companies, maybe working on a new idea, maybe don't even have an idea yet. We are going to try to invest a little bit more in that in Austin over the next couple of years, because I think there's a lot of really interesting talent out there that's ready to start their company. And how do you, I've had this discussion with others, when you think about the talent side, because we don't have quite as many cycles as we've, as other ecosystems, it's hard to always say, well, I want to find somebody who has that exit already, or was at, you know, number 10 at this company. So how are you thinking about identifying either early talent, or early founders, when there aren't the signals that are as readily apparent? Yeah, for us, you know, we've been investing in Austin for a long time, uh, me for about 16 years, my partner for over 30. So we have some pretty deep networks of um, founders, venture-backed executives that we really rely on for folks that have been in Austin for a while. As you know, we also have a ton of people that have been here in the past little bit. And you know, uh, often we are finding ourselves looking at for people who who've come in, they have relationships with seed funds in their geographies that they emigrated from. And so, you know, we've looked at a couple of deals recently where there's a lead in place of a person from New York or LA or Chicago, but they want a local person to integrate them into the, the, the ecosystem. And so, that's where we try to play that role is joining syndicates where we can really add value on bringing the Austin and Houston and Dallas networks uh, um, to these companies. What do you think about the LP side of the equation? So the LPs for the for pre-seed and seed funds, I would assume are quite different than the A and B, just given relative check size. You're probably not raising from large endowments or pension funds unless I'm wrong. So what are you hearing and seeing from LPs at this stage and who are they? Uh, I'm happy to jump in. Um, so our LP mix is we've got a number of GPs at later stage funds. We've got a number of high net worth you know, folks that we've worked with in the past or successful entrepreneurs in Austin, Houston, Dallas. We've got a lot of family offices and a little bit of fund to fund. So we're in general seeing a trend of more institutional capital coming towards fund of funds. I think that's going to be a big source of capital for funds like ours over the next decade. But you know, usually on fund ones, the source of capital is high net worth and family office. And in Texas, that there has not historically been an appetite with a lot of oil and gas families to invest in venture. And I think that's changing now, which is great to see. So I think we're going to see, uh, you know, a lot of these small seed funds get off the ground with family office capital. And I think we're going to see a bigger movement of Texas family offices into the asset class. And that'll likely be into small funds uh, like ours. So we're, we're pretty excited about that in general. Are we seeing the LP market for Texas? Like, how does Austin compare? Is it really kind of across the board? Are you going needed to go more to Houston and Dallas? Like, what are we thinking about the you know, family office and high net worth scene? Our experience is that people in Austin, you know, a lot of the source of wealth is venture backed companies in Austin, in addition to 
oil and gas, real estate, uh, all that type of stuff. And so we we tend to see uh, more family offices interested in the asset class in general um, in in Austin. And then Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, there's actually you know way more capital, uh, but it's less interested in the asset class. So we find ourselves doing a lot of education in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. But, you know, there, even in kind of the past couple of years of fundraising, I feel like uh, um, the interest in venture has um, dramatically improved. Caitlin, I mean, talk a little bit about like your, some of your experience with the, with the LP side, especially given you, you, know, you changed markets and you moved to Austin. How's that kind of affected the, the story, either positively or negatively? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a probably similar mix of LPs, like family offices, some fund of funds. Uh, strategics in my case, uh, high net worth individuals. I, I was thinking about this because I saw it in your interview guide. I actually don't have a single Texas LP right now. I mean, part of, of fundraising on a, you know, we were talking about how it takes six months from meeting a founder to investing in a company. Well, I think to get an LP, it takes like at least 12, like 12 months minimum, maybe longer. Like people really want to know you over time. They want to partner partner with you. And it's a long-term game, a really long relationship, at least like t- 10 years. I mean, in a pre-seed fund, like half your portfolio could could fail and go out of business. But if you're investing in a, in a manager, like that's at least 10 years, if not more, and you really have to trust them. So at least for me, it's it's still like the beginning of the beginning for, for me to develop some of those relationships. But I just love the independent spirit here in, in Texas and in Austin. And I think people have a real like interest in building the future. And then there are a ton of serial entrepreneurs here that have exited their companies recently that are like thinking about what's next and want to participate in interesting ways in the ecosystem. So I'm optimistic, but it's still super early days for me. Yeah. I think it was interesting when you talk about like the people wanting to participate because I was trying to put my finger on looking at the history of Austin that there seemed to be an inflection point in 2016, 2017. And it wasn't until after finally digging that there were, I realized that there were a bunch of exits that happened around there. And so you had this inflection point because a lot of capital was unlocked. A lot of founders were unlocked. And I think that back to the question about whether the market's cold or not, but I think we might be on the verge. The question is probably not 24, but maybe 25 when some of that happens again uh, in Austin, some of the, some of the unlocks. You know, I, I, I agree with that. They kind of the cross in the finger. So on that, like what, Kayla, I'm going to start with you. What general trends are you seeing in the valuation, money raise, the traction in this stage? And as you've been looking at kind of like Austin companies, how do, how do those kind of numbers compare? Yeah, I think, well, we look so early and my view is like, you just really need people who are moving pretty fast and are able to be capital efficient quickly. I mean, these are the things I also so look for. And what I see that's interesting in Austin is I think you have a lot of potentially second time founders, people who've had a good exit in the last couple of years, who've moved to Austin and are beginning to think about their next thing and are not overly quick to want to raise a venture round because like they, they know what that game looks like and they're looking for the right partner and they want to have things that validate it for themselves before they go out and raise money. So I think that's positive. And then you also have so many bootstrapped entrepreneurs here, like people who are running cash flow generating businesses, creator economy type plays. 
those not might not be venture backable, but it's an interesting part of the ecosystem for sure. And some of them might be able to turn into venture backable businesses, you know, with the right inflection point. So I don't have any like tried and true, you know, metrics for you. I know the ones I know what we we aim for, you know, precedes at like five to six million posts, for example. I mean, if it's a bigger round, you get up to like 10, but that's kind of like our max is doing a 10 to 12 million post money. What are you seeing though? We, we kind of come a lot from, you know, the, the, the 21, 22 bubble. And I'm going to put my, my eyes in here because I, I keep hearing this, okay, it's the worst market in 10 years and all of these kind of numbers being thrown out. And then I kind of scratch my head a little bit. And, and this is where I, I want you guys to push because I look at the overall numbers that we seem to be headed towards for 20. So not, so this is the U S it looks like startup money raised will be somewhere between, you know, 2019 and 2020 numbers, Austin already, and we still got a couple of weeks left. I don't know how many things are actually going to be announced, but if we kind of stop where we're at, we're at like 3.2, 3.3 billion, which is the third highest year on record with only 21 and 22 with, we all, I think agree we're overinflated. So this is a, you know, it's been a rel- a really good year. If you don't compare it to those, the, the kind of the crazy years. So I, I kind of, I'm not seeing the same thing, but at the same time, I'm not, you know, trying to raise. I'm, I'm just skeptical of some of these numbers because I think people like people put late stage or very different things that are like not truly venture in that bucket, which create these like big distortions. Like is OpenAI a startup at an $80 billion valuation with a billion dollar partnership with Microsoft? No, I don't think like in what world would you put that in the same bucket as like any company that I'd be investing in? So I, I don't think the data is, is is suspect. And then I also know from my own, you know, you know, the data sources, right? There's like PitchBook and Carta and, and Crunchbase. And, and I look at the data I have and what I'm feeding into those platforms. And then, th- so, so they must be at least like nine months out of date, mm. you know? Uh, AngelList would be like another another one because I know what data or what what their data is on my company, so I assume that it's it can be similar. And then I think that there's also quite a few things that don't get captured in those um, in those headline numbers, like what's the structure? Was it debt? Was it equity? What was the blended valuation? It's because I've heard of portfolio companies versus uh, net new investors. Yeah, yeah, I think the. The aggregate numbers tend to favor the later stage stuff. And, you know, on, in an ecosystem like Austin, where e- even if you have, because we're up and to the right on almost every metric. And so even if the, the slope changes a little bit, we're still going to be on this you know, massive upward trajectory. So it's still, I mean, I don't, I think if you asked entre- entrepreneurs at series A, series B, even beyond that, they'd say it's still frozen. And the, the you know, from what I'm hearing, uh, talking to later stage um, investors, is that what we're going to start seeing in Q1, first half of next year, is down rounds, recaps, pay to plays, and basically all the, the, the structure on those later stage rounds. If I go back to, you know, when I started my career in 2008, everything was frozen for, you know, almost all of 2009. And then at the end of 2009, things started to free up a little bit. And then 2010 was all about 
recaps and structure on rounds and uh, and a bunch of the stuff that Caitlin was mentioning. And then we didn't really get back to a normal environment until 2011. And that was when, you know, we made one of the best investments of uh, in the history of the firm. And so we're just, I, I think we're going to go through that. And I think that the later stage funds, when it does open up, they're going to start focusing on a little bit later stage deals. So the, the, the bar on a series A is going to go up. And again, this is only if history repeats itself. And so how that affects, if you kind of wind that back to how it affects uh, our portfolio companies and the rounds that we're doing, we are every, every round that we come into, we are underwriting a plan for two years of burn with no new revenue. And I, you know, whereas a year or two ago, we were, we were looking more like the 12 to 18 months. And so maybe that's overly cautious, but uh, we just want to make sure that these companies are capitalized well enough to be able to withstand the winter if it lasts longer than we expected to. Yeah, no, and I think it, I mean, we, everything is being shoved together, right? I mean, one of the reasons that we clearly are uh, doing well like this quarter is that Firefly had the rest of their $300 million round. Now, if you got we always, it's good to look apples to apples on one hand, like I under, I agree on what you're saying with open AI and I know like SpaceX just did another, you know, a tender offer, but like, I don't know where the line is. And so at least on the, you know, we kind of going, I think what's interesting is of course that, that those later stages, at least my time being here in Austin, I think that's what started to shift in Austin is we hadn't really had a C and D that like you had those a little bit, but now that we're starting to have them versus I, I just remember like we had, I don't know, it was like, I think we were like 600 million or something for the quarter or, or the quarter so far. And I literally read at that same moment that Boston had like 500 million in two weeks. I was like, Oh my God, like that's, <laughs> that's just the difference in scale that we're talking about in, in, in some of these things. I do think it was really interesting. I'd love to, and I think uh, Peter Walker from Carter is going to come back on the, on the podcast kind of early next year to give a kind of a uh, retrospective of the whole year. But it is interesting. You talk about like pitch book and CB insights versus Carta. And I'd love to look at kind of like an apples to apples of those data because Carta is on actual signed documents and deals versus the other ones are much more on what are we hearing about in the news and what are we hearing about, you know, uh, is coming or what's being submitted. I mean, it's just speaking of like Firefly that when they announced that they're like, oh, we had, we did our third tranche of our 270. When was the second? Like you kind of have, you kind of have to put it on Q4 from just a perspective. But I was like, I don't know, probably happened four months, four or five months ago, but they didn't announce it. So that kind of makes some of the data a little bit di difficult to track and figure out. Well, even Carta's, you have to remember, like a deal might be basically agreed to or done, but isn't updated in Carta until, you know, it's signed, sealed, delivered. So some of those things just like take, take a while, especially like I think wind downs too. Things can, companies can zombie for a long time on the on angel list before they ever really mark them down oh yeah like there's if only i had perfect information that would just be like my life so, so much easier. yes yeah so what are kind of the your big expectations then you know going into for 24 at this stage outside of as you said you're you're telling them to raise for two years just so that they have you know runway to get through whenever this market kind of returns to normal well, I, I push for revenue and cash faster. You know, it's like, like, who's your customer? 
what can you sell them? How can you get to like cash flow, break even? How many people do you really need to have full time on your core team building out the product before you get product market fit so that you can be cash efficient? Yeah, efficiency wasn't really the name of the game for a while. And um, we have a whole generation of entrepreneurs that was not raised on building capital efficient businesses. And so we've definitely seen that. But um, I'm I'm just really excited about this the next few years because I think generation defining companies are going to be built and they're going to be started next year. And uh, I think Austin is probably, you know, it, it, it's got to be on the top of the list of uh, places where these companies are being formed. There's, we've, we've gone through this step function over the past couple of years of people moving here, companies moving here, and uh, that I'm very bullish on Austin for the next, next decade. I definitely think one of the things that I found most interesting about people moving here is that I found that so many people have moved, are moving here for the generalized allure of Austin and the Austin tech ecosystem. It's not because of this vertical or that vertical in particular, but then some of those are starting to become bigger and bigger. And I just imagine as those narratives start to connect in, oh, like, you know, we are really strong in, in biohealth. We are really strong in advanced manufacturing or, or, at, or whatever they may be. And you say, oh, this is the place to go for this particular thing then it's going to be a whole new kind of speed at the flywheel is going to go. So I want to end always with the same question. Feel free to answer as narrowly or widely as you want. I'm going to start with you, Rich, even then, Caitlin, I'll give you the last word. What's next, Austin? I am just so excited about the opportunity set of the companies that are going to be built here in the next decade. You know, I think the next $10 billion, $100 billion company is going to come out of Austin. We'll check back in in 10 years and see if I'm right. I love it. I've been using the word Austin Cenus, which is a combination of genius plus scene, which is like, I just, and I just feel this like momentum of this like collective genius in Austin, which is, you know, mixing and, and per- percolating and like coming together for maker weekends and building things and trying things out. And I'm totally with Rajiv. I think there's going to be amazing companies that are coming out of Austin and they will be started next year and the year after that. And it's such an exciting time to be here. And you really have the space to think big and be long-term and patient and, and be, not be distracted by the anxieties of some of the other places. So I'm, I'm pumped to be a, be a part of the, of the CNS here in Austin. I, I love it. I love the word. I may, uh, the Austin CNS, I may start just uh, make, making, that a, making that a thing. <laughs> Caitlin, Rajiv, thank you so much for joining the show. This is great. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.